Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. There are many places here in central Pennsylvania thought to be stops on the Underground Railroad, the network that helped blacks escape slavery in the South. But often we think about the places and not the people, both those who are risking their lives to escape and those who assisted them to freedom. The 2015 book, which is new in paperback now, Gateway to Freedom, the Hidden History of the Underground Railroad, tells their stories. The author of the book is one of the nation's preeminent history scholars, Pulitzer Prize winner, Dr. Eric Foner. Dr. Foner, welcome to the program. Uh, nice to speak with you. Also want to mention that Gateway to Freedom, the Hidden History of the Underground Railroad, is WITF and Aaron's book's pick of the month for the month of February. All right, the title alone, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. What part of that history has been hidden or little known? Well, uh, I think the, the title uh, or subtitle was meant to allude to two things. One, obviously, much of the work of the Underground Railroad took place in secret, aiding fugitive slaves was against the law and dangerous um, and so much of what happened was hidden but also I wanted to allude to a particular document that um, in our, actually in our Columbia University rare books library um, which had never been seen before or used by other scholars until actually a student pointed it out to me so I must give her credit uh, who was working on something else and sort of stumbled upon it but it's a record that was kept by a, a key Underground Railroad figure in New York City, Sidney Howard Gay, who was a journalist. And for two years in the 1850s, he recorded the experiences of over 200 fugitive slaves who passed through New York City. He interviewed them. He asked them about their, you know, who, how they escaped, who helped them, why they ran away. And so this was a very unusual document, which gave us a lot of insight into the lives and of these, you know, very courageous slaves who, who took it upon themselves to try to escape to freedom. So that also had been hidden uh, kind of in plain sight. It was not in someone's attic. It was just in our rare books room, but it had been almost never used by historians until now. And I don't think we can put enough, enough emphasis on that because it was against the law and there were so many, uh, uh, so much of this was in secret. Uh, it was so unusual to find that document, but uh, there only were a, a few other people who were involved in assisting slaves to freedom that kept records. Uh, I know in Philadelphia, you, you had, was it William Still who kept some William records? Still, yes. Now, you're quite right, of course. And in fact, after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act of 18. Which made it a federal responsibility to capture these slaves and a federal crime to help them. Uh, some people uh, who had been kept, keeping records burned them uh, just because uh, you know they didn't they didn't want to be caught with these. So what? Uh, yes, still kept records like this in Philadelphia, and that was very valuable for me because at least half of the slaves mentioned in New York City came through Philadelphia. And so you can compare the information still recorded about them with the information Sidney Howard Gay recorded about them in New York City. Still hid his records, he, he says, uh, sometime in a graveyard. I mean, in other words, he was frightened of being, uh, you know, found with these records. And uh, But Gay, I don't know where he hid them, but uh, nobody arrested either of them, and uh, they, you know, continued these efforts. Now, you in the book, and I, I, I mentioned this uh, in the introduction, that here in central Pennsylvania, and you do uh, talk about some of the places here in this region uh, where slaves escaped to, where th there were stops on the Underground Railroad, but for the most part, you focused on New York City. Why is that? 
Well, it really is because, you know, sometimes when you want to write a book of history, you kind of think of the issues you're interested in, and then what are the sources, what are the documents that enable me to answer these questions? In this case, it was the reverse. This document, the record of fugitives, um, which, you know, focuses on New York City, uh, I kind of worked outward from that. So, yes, the... um, the book focuses on the Eastern Underground Railroad, which includes Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, upstate New York, Canada, New England, etc. There's a whole other story in the West with Ohio and Michigan, but that's a different question. Uh, but Pennsylvania plays an important role in this book because obviously Pennsylvania is borders Maryland. It has the, uh, a very long border with a slave state. Um, and in central uh, southern Pennsylvania, Um, You had two groups there which did do a lot to help fugitive slaves. One was free blacks, uh, William Whipper, for example, a free black businessman in in Columbia, uh, Pennsylvania there. Um, uh, He he was very active in assisting fugitives. And then there were these Quaker farm families, rural Quaker families who hid fugitives and often sent them then on their way to Philadelphia, where William Still would put them on a train to New York City, and off they went. So... um, you know, obviously, you didn't get to New York City unless you passed through Pennsylvania, although maybe I should take that back, because a lot of the people who turn up in um, New York actually came by boat. Uh, one of the things that surprised me was there were a good number of sea captains at that time who would uh, transport fugitives, a few of them hidden on their ships, up the Atlantic coast. You know, there were a lot of ships going up and down, so from Virginia up to New York City. Um, these weren't necessarily abolitionists. They charged slaves money for hiding them, and it was a, just a lucrative side business for some of these sea captains. Yeah, and, and one of the first things that came to mind was, as I was reading that, I have to admit, I was surprised too, because most often uh, we think of the Underground Railroad as uh, runaway slaves hiding in the woods uh, during the daytime uh, and running at night, uh, you know, hiding in cellars, crawl spaces, barns, that kind of thing. Yeah. But you did describe a number of, a, a lot, in fact, of times when uh, slaves escaped by sea. By sea, either on the boats of captains who would take them or by appropriating little boats. There were slaves who just stole a rowboat and somehow rowed out into uh, Chesapeake Bay trying to get across there and up into Delaware and then uh, to Pennsylvania. Um, By the 1850s, which is the height of the Underground Railroad, uh, yes, there were still slaves running away on foot, but most of them are using more modern and swift modes of transportation. They are getting on trains, they are getting on boats. Uh, some of them stole the horse-drawn carriages of their owners and rode off from Maryland into Pennsylvania. Uh, obviously, it's a lot quicker to get on a train and get from, let's say, Baltimore to New York than it is doing it on foot. And uh, even though it's dangerous, Uh, quite a few slaves managed to use these more modern modes of transportation. And then once they got to New York, Gay would put them on a train to Albany, to Syracuse, and within 24 hours they're in Canada. So um, it makes it much quicker to get away, obviously. How did they get on trains in the South? Well, you know, first of all, in Maryland, there were at least half the black population was already free in the 1850s. So black people traveling on their own was uh, something that was common there. Um, But you needed a pass. You had to have either free papers uh, or some kind of pass from your owner, if you were a slave, uh, entitling you to uh, travel. So slaves would 
get forged free passes or they would forge a pass from their owner saying this slave has you know my permission to go for the weekend to visit his wife uh, in this other town um frederick douglas who did this back in the 1830s 1838 he hopped on a train in Baltimore and ended up in New York City. He just borrowed the papers of a free black sailor. Um, uh, black sailors who men, you know, there were a lot of free black sailors at that time, and they all had these free papers. So you had to have some kind of false identification, really, if you were a slave getting on a train. But um, quite a few managed to do that. Yeah, I didn't realize, and you cover this like in the very beginning of the book, that Frederick Douglass had like uh, three different last names before he became Frederick Douglass. Right. Well, he was Frederick Bailey when he ran away. Uh, then he became uh, Frederick, I can't remember what, in uh, New Bedford, Frederick Johnson. And then he said, you know, half the black people in New Bedford, Mass, are named Johnson, so I'm going to take another name. So it became Frederick Douglass. But that makes the job of the historian even trickier because just about every slave who ran away changed his or her name uh, when they got to the North in order to help evade recapture. So uh, for the historian, that's a little tricky. We've got people with one name at one part of the story and with another name at another part of the story, and obviously coordinating that is uh, just adds to the uh, complications of studying the Underground Railroad. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Dr. Eric Foner, author of the book Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. It is WITF and Aaron Book's pick of the month for the month of February. I also should mention that Dr. Foner will be at Dickinson College uh, in the month of March to kick off a conference on Reconstruction after the Civil War, and that begins on March 24th. If you have a question, or comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Dr. Foner, let's go back. Slavery was still legal in many northern states up until the 1820s and 30s. So an escaped slave from the South had no guarantee of freedom. In fact, there were a lot of uh, northerners who were quite willing to return blacks to slavery. Oh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, there were people who may not have been pro-slavery, but just said, look, this is the rule of law. Abraham Lincoln being a perfect example. Um, he didn't help return slaves, but he didn't do anything to help fugitive slaves either before the Civil War. And his reason was, hey, this is in the Constitution that they have a right to get their slaves back. We cannot decide which law to violate and which law to abide by. He believed in the rule of law. And so he thought, look, I may not like this law, but it's the law. Now, there were, but even more than that, as you say, in Pennsylvania, most northern states uh, in the eastern part adopted these gradual emancipation laws in the uh, 1780s, 1790s, Pennsylvania 1780s. So slavery died out very slowly. In New York, it wasn't until 1827 that slavery was finally abolished. And in fact, for another 15 years after that, it was legal for a Southerner to bring slaves into the state if they were visiting on business or vacation. Uh, they could come with slaves for up to nine months. So there were slaves on the streets of New York City legally up to 1841. And then there was organized slave catchers. There was a guy in New York, a Virginian a lawyer who was based in New York, and he put ads in the newspaper just saying, if anyone is looking for a slave, you know, a Southerner thinks their slave has escaped to New York, send me a description and I will get him. That's the language he used in his ad. I will get him. 
so there were businesses who, that was their job, to capture fugitive slaves. Uh, they watched the docks, they watched the rail stations, they burst into black churches sometime looking for fugitives. So, yeah, it was very dangerous, and you couldn't really stop in Pennsylvania or New York, really, because the danger of being recaptured was very great. That's why, after 1850, basically, you had to get to Canada. There was no place in the North that was safe with the federal government now uh, on the track of fugitive slaves. Before that, it was more the states, and they did it in more of a haphazard manner. Uh, you know, uh, there are two, and 1850 is a significant uh, year, but uh, there were two fugitive uh, slave laws. The one in 1793 doesn't get as much attention uh, as right. the 1850 fugitive slave law. Talk about the 1793 law. Yeah, well, first of all, the fact that it was passed in 1793 shows you that this was an issue right at the beginning of the Republic. This is four years after George Washington is inaugurated. And um, the, the 1793 law was <laughs> rather vague and obscure. Basically, it, it put the onus on the owner. It, ga it gave the owner a right to go into another state and capture his fugitive and then bring him to a judge or official, any kind of official, sheriff, justice of the peace, who would then issue a little, uh, what they call certificate of removal, a little document saying he could take him back. But it, it was really up to the owner to go get him, and often that became rather difficult, you know. Um, and so it, the Fugitive Slave Law of 1793 wasn't really enforced all that effectively. And by the 1820s and 30s, many northern states are passing what they call personal liberty laws. Pennsylvania is one of the most important in the 1820s. These were not laws saying, hey, fugitives can come in here. They, was, they were trying to set up legal procedures so if a fugitive was or somebody accused of being a fugitive was captured, uh, then there would be a procedure like a trial by jury. Do we know that this guy really is a fugitive slave? We can't have uh, Southerners just coming in here and grabbing people off the streets and taking them back without any evidence, etc. So, um, but those procedures, again, slowed down the process of recapturing fugitives. And by the 1840s, the Southerners are demanding more stringent laws, and they get that in 1850, when, as I said before, it's the federal government, which now federal marshals, federal commissioners, even the army, and indeed it was used sometime, the U.S. Army, to capture fugitives and bring them back to the, to the South. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Foner, author of the book Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. Dr. Foner is a Pulitzer Prize winner for his last book, The Fiery Trials of Abraham Lincoln. And uh, it is also, this book is a WITF and Aaron Book's Pick of the Month for February. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. That's 1-800-729-7532. Or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Dr. Foner, let's go back. Uh, how did uh, what became known as the Underground Railroad have its beginnings? Well, that's uh, not 100% clear. Uh, obviously, as long as slavery has existed, back to the colonial era, some slaves have tried to escape, and some individual people have helped them. But if you consider the Underground Railroad an organized set of groups, it wasn't that gigantic. We shouldn't over overemphasize it, but there were these little networks all around uh, of 
small numbers of people who did effectively give help to fugitive slaves. So if we consider it organized, I think the Underground Railroad really began in New York City, actually, in 1835, when a free black uh, abolitionist, um, David Ruggles, established what they called the New York Committee of Vigilance. And the purpose of that was, first of all, to stop the kidnapping of free black people off the streets of New York City, which was happening mostly of children. You know, people remember the movie of a couple of years ago, uh, 12 Years a Slave, about Solomon Northrop, who was kidnapped and held in slavery for 12 years. This was not that uncommon. And particularly in New York City, there were gangs doing that. And the Committee of Vigilance first was organized to stop that, but then very quickly they said, and we're going to also help um, fugitive slaves, and we call on other cities to set up committees of vigilance. So Philadelphia followed very quickly, Boston, Albany, and by around 1840, you had these little now connections between local groups helping fugitives. So that's what we really mean by the Underground Railroad. And the first reference to it in newspapers that I have ever seen came in 1842, that a newspaper mentioned the Underground Railroad as a sort of term now being used to describe organized efforts to help fugitives. So whenever it began exactly by the 1840s, it was certainly in operation, uh, and it expanded. And after 1850, the Fugitive Slave Law uh, was meant to suppress the Underground Railroad, but actually it inspired a lot more abolitionists to get more deeply involved in helping fugitives. Now, this can get complicated, but uh, you mentioned abolitionists. Not everyone was on board in the North with abolitionists. Uh, you know, Hardly. They, he, uh, <laughs> yeah, they were very unpopular. Exactly. But William Lloyd Garrison was uh, the best known, had a publication. Uh, and the group that you mentioned, there was a splinter group that came off of that and some other groups as well because there was a little bit of a rivalry there and they didn't exactly agree on some things. Tell us yeah, about well, that. Well, the abolitionists, like uh, some other radical organizations, spent a lot of time fighting among themselves. I mean, they were very courageous people. As I said, they were very unpopular except in a few regions of the North. Uh, mobs broke up their meetings in the 1830s. Um, but um, they did do many, many things, mostly campaigning to end slavery, but the Underground Railroad is part of this abolitionist movement. But as you say, the the movement split in 1840 into two wings, those who wanted to go into politics, those who didn't, and other issues. And so in New York, you had two outposts of the Underground Railroad, one associated with the Garrisonian wing, the people who followers of William Lloyd Garrison in Boston, and the Vigilance Committee, which I mentioned, which was actually mostly followers of the of other wing. You know, we don't have to go into all the details on this, but so you had a kind of friendly rivalry between these two outposts of the Underground Railroad. Sometimes they fought among themselves. Sometimes they cooperated to assist fugitive slaves, uh, and uh, that made it even more complicated to figure out what was often what was going on in the uh, records of this time. You know, one of the things that may surprise uh, many people when they read your book is that uh, I, I think a lot of people picture whites as you know, most of the conductors, if we could use that term, on the Underground Railroad. Many of the people, if not most of the people you have been describing today, talking about, were black, African-Americans. No, absolutely. Uh, free blacks were crucial to all this uh, in the North, and certainly in the South, 
Uh, if you're a fugitive escaping, there really wasn't much of an underground railroad in the South. It was too difficult and too dangerous to help fugitives in slave states. So those people who ran away who did get help below the Mason-Dixon line, it was usually kind of haphazard, and it was often just ordinary black people, whether slave or free, who they encountered on their on their journey to the North, uh, who gave them advice, gave them directions, gave them food or something like that. Once they crossed over into Pennsylvania, uh, then there are organized groups helping them, and some of them are white, as we said, these Quakers, for example, but a lot of them were African-American free people, whether it's William Still in New York City, I mean in Philadelphia. In New York, Sidney Howard Gay, I mentioned, is white, but his sidekick or his the guy working with him is a black uh, porter, really, in his office called Louis Napoleon, a very memorable name, and he's a, you know, a free black man, and Napoleon was really the man on the streets in New York vis-a-vis the Underground Railroad. He would go to the railroad depot to meet people. He would go to the docks to meet slaves who were hidden on ships. Uh, He was actually illiterate, but he would go to court and get writs of habeas corpus trying to help fugitives who might have been seized, prevent them from going back to the South. Uh, Up in Syracuse, the head of the Underground Railroad was a black man named Jermaine Logan, who himself was a fugitive slave. I think what's interesting about the abolitionist movement and the Underground Railroad also is that it was an interracial movement. It was the first interracial political movement in American history. And, you know, I think that's something that uh, we might look back on with pride, given that, um, you know, race relations are a little fraught with tension nowadays in this country. But the Underground Railroad and the abolitionist movement show that it is possible for blacks and whites to cooperate uh, in a common cause. There were a number of significant cases that either went to court or there were some judgments about whether a fugitive or an alleged fugitive would go back uh, to his owner in the South. But one case I wanted to bring up, and it's right here in our backyard in York County, and it was a significant case, Prigg versus Pennsylvania, a case from York County. Tell us about that. Well, Prigg versus Pennsylvania had to do with um, basically a dispute between Maryland and um, and, and Pennsylvania over the what you well either the rend the capture of a of a couple of fugitive slaves by owners uh, uh, the representatives of the owner Prig sent people into Pennsylvania to grab a few of these supposed fugitives that was the issue and bring them back into Pennsylvania I mean into Maryland Pennsylvania said this is kidnapping these people are Pennsylvanians they are not slaves and uh, you don't have the right to come into our state and just kidnap people and bring them back in, bring them into Maryland with no legal procedure or anything. The uh, owner said, no, 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 these are fugitives, and they're my property, and I have a right to get them back. And this went all the way to the Supreme Court. It's a dispute between Maryland and um, Pennsylvania. And in that case, 1842, the Supreme Court basically overturned the legality of Pennsylvania and other laws trying to regulate the capture of fugitive slaves. They said, first of all, the owner can go and grab his fugitive wherever he wants, and second of all, no law of a state can interfere with this. But it also added, actually, this is a federal responsibility, and states uh, don't really have to do anything if they don't want. They can't impede the capture of a fugitive, but they don't have to help either. And so after that, Several northern states passed laws saying, okay, we're not going to help. No sheriff can help a guy trying to capture a fugitive. We want, you can't lodge him in a jail or any county court. No public official can have anything to do with this. 
Um, and Southerners got annoyed at that, and that was one of the things that led eventually to the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. But certainly Prig v. Pennsylvania greatly upheld the right of Southerners to just go and kidnap black people in the North on the grounds that they were fugitive slaves. And uh, you quote uh, someone, I don't know if this is a, a contemporary person or not, who said that uh, Prig versus Pennsylvania was one of the worst decisions ever by the U.S. Supreme Court. I think that's a recent law review article. There was <laughs> there was a guy, a law professor, who wrote an article, uh, this is a funny article, about the worst, what are the worst Supreme Court decisions in history? Everyone says Dred Scott was the worst one ever. But uh, this professor said, you know, I think Prigg versus Pennsylvania actually has uh, has a greater claim to being the worst Supreme Court <laughs> decision in history. Well, let's go to the telephone, take a few calls. Rick is in Lidditz. Rick, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi. I, I have a question for, uh, for your guest. I, I grew up in Croydon, Pennsylvania, north of Philadelphia, and, and my uncle owned this place that was called White Hall that was rumored to be uh, a stop on the Underground Railroad, and just down the road from him, there was China Hall that actually had an underground tunnel that led out to the river, and supposedly they would hide slaves, and in one tidal motion, a six-hour tide, they could go from Philadelphia up to Trenton. Um, Does you your know, know anything about that? Buildings, uh, obviously, uh, it's possible... I think, uh, how shall I put this, there are far more places that are said to be underground railroad sites than there actually were, um, but that doesn't mean these two places weren't. I would be a little bit skeptical about tunnels, codes, secret passageways. Uh, I never saw any reference to that in the stories of the fugitive slaves who came through New York. Uh, they came by the conveyances I've mentioned, train, boat, on foot, but and not through tunnels, for my uh, knowledge. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's great, and I think it's important that local research, to, to get into the bottom of this, local people have to do local research in local newspapers, in uh, local, you know, uh, documents of one kind or another, and, uh, you know, figure out, yeah, there were certainly places that hid fugitive slaves, but they sometimes uh, local pride or even the desire to increase tourism uh, <laughs> lead to uh, perhaps a slight exaggeration. The, as I said, the Underground Railroad was uh, a more small-scale operation than we sometimes uh, tend to think. And, we, and this is not about your point, but we should certainly not take the railroad metaphor literally. There were no uh, fixed timetables. There were no fixed stations, really. Uh, set routes like a railroad map. Uh, it was rather more, not quite as organized as that. Let's just put it that way. Let's take another call from Alan in York. Alan, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. My question is, of course, I'm from York, and one of the most famous names in the Underground Railroad history was William C. Goodrich. Yes, yes. And I York believe was he the had of a... the Underground Railroad, no question. And and another town, I don't know the geography there, York Springs, is that right near York? Yes, yes. Well, York yes. Springs, for some reason, I'm not even sure who lived there, was, it pops up a number of times in William Still's records uh, about Pennsylvania. So certainly when you take, you know, Lancaster, York, uh, Harrisburg... Uh, these places did have a lot of activity. They're very close to the Maryland border, as you well know. Mm -hmm. And um, it, there were definitely people there who were very happy to help fugitives and send them on their way. And But then there were big cases where fugitives in Harrisburg particularly were captured, 
uh, by Southern owners and dragged back into slavery. So Southern Pennsylvania, all the way across from you know uh, Chester County further to the east and then out further west from where you are, was a battleground. I mean, in a way, you know, the Civil War didn't begin until 1861, but Southern Pennsylvania was a violent battleground between North and South uh, all the way through the 1850s. Al, did you have a follow-up on that? Well, I just wanted to uh, see if the uh, the guest uh, had any has done research on Mr. Goodrich's uh, railroad. I think it was called the Reliance Line, and I think he had 13 uh, railroad cars that could transport uh, slaves, I guess, throughout Pennsylvania. Was he able to find much research well, uh, on you that? Know, there was William yeah, Wicker, who was a black abolitionist there. I think I mentioned him, who also had a railroad. Or maybe he was connected with this other railroad. I'm not quite sure. Whipper was a lumber merchant, and he used his little railroad to transport lumber to Philadelphia, and he sometimes put slaves on there. I'm not quite sure, but I would, if I were you, take a look at William Still's book, The Underground Railroad, which has is full of information about the Underground Railroad in Pennsylvania. Uh, and as I said, my book, because of the document it's based on, tends to focus a little further east, coming, people coming right up the east coast through uh, Maryland, Delaware, Philadelphia, up to New York City. Um, but, you know, so you're a little bit further west than most of the research I did. But there certainly are... Uh, and you can also look into, there's a book by a, a, a scholar called Tom Calarco uh, uh, called People of the Underground Railroad, which is capsule biographies of many of these people, and you can see if Goodrich is in there. Just, to, you know, I wanted to go back to uh, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, but before we do that, a significant event here in southern Pennsylvania, when you talk about a battleground, was the Christiana Riot, as it's referred to, yes. in, in Chester County. Talk about that, if you would. Well, yeah, that was, uh, that was 1851, a year after the passage of the uh, Fugitive Slave Law, and uh, basically there were um, uh, some fugitives uh, kind of hiding out or living in a house in Christiano and the outside of it in the farmhouse. And uh, the owner, a sheriff, uh, and uh, some other guys came armed to recapture these fugitives. Uh, they were armed, too. And then a whole crowd of people uh, came to the place, and mostly blacks, free black. There were free black farmers in that neighborhood. And a, a gun battle basically took place where the owner was killed, several people were wounded, uh, the fugitives escaped, and, um, it, you know, it became a, a major uh, public issue, the, the, you know, killing of someone in the process of executing a uh, federal law. And uh, many of these people were uh, uh, indicted for, you know, murder or interfering with the federal process, but nobody was convicted. This was a fairly anti-slavery neighborhood, so it was impossible to uh, actually convict the people who had um, taken part in this altercation. And this further alarmed the South. I mean, you know, one of the interesting things is there weren't that many fugitives who got away. My emphasis, my estimate, which is just a really an educated guess, is maybe a thousand a year from all over, got out of the South and became free. A thousand a year. Okay, that's 10,000 in the 1850s. That's not bad, but there were four million slaves in the United States in 1860. So a thousand a year is not destroying the system of slavery. But things like the Christiana uh, riot uh, alarmed Southerners. And in fact, when South Carolina seceded, in 1860, they issued a list of grievances, and the number one grievance was northern uh, obstruction 
of the return of fugitive slaves. So it became a political issue much more important than maybe the specific numbers might um, lead you to believe. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was a game changer, though, wasn't it? Well, it was a game changer in many ways. First of all, as we said, it put the federal government now right in the responsibility of capturing and returning fugitives. And, you know, it's interesting. We often hear about Southerners believing in states' rights before the Civil War. In fact, there were those who say, you know, no, the Civil War wasn't really about slavery. It was about states' rights. Southerners did believe in states' rights because slavery was created by state law. So the more autonomy the states had, the less anyone else could interfere with slavery. But when it came to very vigorous federal action to protect slavery, they were happy to do that. The Fugitive Slave Law was the most extreme intervention of the federal government in the affairs of the states of any law passed in the whole period before the Civil War. So uh, those who think the South believed in states' rights, it's hard to explain the Fugitive Slave Act uh, uh, if, if that's what you think. There were a lot of heroes involved in the Underground Railroad. You've mentioned a few, but there are some that are more famous than others, and uh, we hear about often today. Harriet Tubman, for example, and Harriet Tubman, Harriet Tubman was uh, was unique in uh, helping uh, slaves escape to freedom, wasn't she? Uh, she was remarkable. The courage of Harriet Tubman is really unbelievable. She was an escaped slave from Maryland, and in the 1850s, she went back about seven times to help lead people out, uh, relatives, friends, others. Uh, all told, she seems to have maybe led 70 or 80 people out of the South in small groups. She went back seven times uh, to freedom. I mean, this was incredibly dangerous. If she had been captured, you know, that was a really serious crime in a Southern state. Um, and um, she actually is in this document that I mentioned, the record of fugitives that inspired this. By the way, parenthetically, let me just say that after my book came out, uh, I put a tr this, this document, a, P a, a scan and a, a, a transcript of it up online. And it, you can read some of these stories of these uh, fugitive slaves just there. Just Google record of fugitives. That's what it's called, the record of fugitives. Google it. You'll come to the website from our library. And it's fascinating. And on two occasions, Harriet Tubman passes through New York, and Sidney Howard Gay interviews her. In fact, the longest um, entry in, that, in those two little uh, notebooks, which are the record of fugitive, has to do with Harriet Tubman. He, he talks about her biography, her history, her activities. Uh, he calls her Captain Harriet Tubman, which is kind of interesting because it suggests at least he knew who she was, even if he may not have known her before. But... Um, yeah, Tubman. And, you know, as uh, there's now a movement to put Harriet Tubman on a piece of federal currency, you know, <laughs> paper money. So maybe that'll happen. I don't know. Uh, Dr. Fon, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. One final question. When did uh, the Underground Railroad, when did it come to its end? You know, I argue it came to its end really early in the Civil War, because as soon as the Civil War begins, federal armies are in Maryland. Very soon they're in parts of Virginia. And slaves kind of figure out, hey, we don't have to get to the north anymore. We can run away to the Union Army, which is much closer by here, and gain our freedom. And in the very early days of the war, the Union Army said, no, no, we're going to send these guys back. But quickly they said, no, what's the point of that? We, we, we'll put them to work for us, and they can work on fortifications or whatever. And so by the middle of 1861, you don't have to run away to the north anymore. And 
thousands of slaves begin to seek their freedom by running away to the Union Army. So at the end of 1861, I quote this in my book, uh, Miller McKim, an ab a white abolitionist, puts a notice in the Philadelphia newspapers, and he just says, it's headed, it's headed, an end is put to the Underground Railroad. We no longer need support or money from people because the Underground Railroad is no longer necessary. So that really is the end of the Underground Railroad. The, it's easier to get to be free by seeking refuge with the Union Army in the South. Pulitzer Prize winner Eric Foner, author of Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. It is WITF and Aaron Book's pick of the month for February. Dr. Foner will be at Dickinson College on March 24th. Dr. Foner, thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Loyal WITF listeners, viewers, and visitors to WITF.org are aware of and have been part of WITF's 50th anniversary celebration over the past year. Often we would hear a congratulatory refrain of, here's to the next 50. With the next 50 years in mind, we want to talk to you today about a new campaign called 50 for the Future. Joining us is WITF's president and CEO, Kathleen Pavelko. Kathleen, always good to have you on the program. Glad to be in the booth with you. <laughs> and joining us also today is uh, one of WITS Premier Circle members, Susan Piggott. Uh, Ms. Piggott, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. All right, uh, I'm going to ask some basic questions for those who may not be familiar, but Talk about this campaign, Kathleen, if you would. Well, we call it 50 for the Future, and what it is is a challenge uh, to secure 50 new Premier Circle donors. Our Premier Circle donors are our leadership donors. These are folks who are uh, generous, uh, who make a annual contribution of $1,200, or if they prefer to make a monthly contribution of $100 a month or more, uh, and we have many Premier Circle donors who contribute well above the $1,200 level. Premier Circle donors are people who spend a lot of time with WITF, who have a deep appreciation of what we do, and because of their generosity, allow WITF to do what we do and to do it better. And this past year, you know, Scott, we've been celebrating the past 50 years of WITF, and all I can tell you is that as you look back for 50 years, it also requires you to look forward. And we want to continue to do and to expand what we do in news and information, educational programs, cultural uh, um uh, coverage, and we do that effectively with Premier Circle donors, and so that's the challenge. And uh, we have a we've had the senior team and I have made a contribution to that challenge fund. We have a donor who's made a very significant contribution to that fund, and what it means is every new Premier Circle donor at twelve hundred dollars or more will have that contribution matched dollar for dollar. So you can double the contribution that you make to WITF during this 50 for the Future campaign. You know, I often say when uh, we are in a fundraising campaign and we have uh, someone who is matching uh, the funds that uh, are contributed, that uh, this is a great value. And that is a great value. I have to also kind of smile, Kathleen, and I, I know you heard this too, when you first announced this campaign. Mm. Uh, you, the number 50, and for the past year, as I mentioned, we had been talking about our 50th uh, birthday celebration, and the first words out of someone's mouth is, 
50. We're, we're looking at the next 50 years already. That it was, We have kind of a smile that we can't get rid of that number, number 50. Well, you know, Scott, you've just spent uh, 45 minutes talking to one of the most distinguished Civil War yep. historians we have, Eric Foner. Uh, and I know, and you and I share, a love of history and that long-term perspective. That's what my responsibilities as president here uh, are, which is to take the long view and to think 50 years ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, Susan Pickett, you are a member of the uh, WITF's Premier Circle. Uh, tell us about that. Uh, how did you get involved, and uh, why did you become a member of the Premier Circle? Well, how I got involved, I was telling Kathleen earlier, I began watching WITF television when it was educational TV. With um, my son, we started off watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and now I watch Daniel Tiger's neighborhood with my grandson. So it's a span of about 30 years. And um, I, I actually, I'm an accidental Premier Circle member when I became a sustaining member several years ago. And I challenged myself just to um, increase that monthly giving year by year. And so um, I just reached that level and I've continue to grow there it's just it's it's easy um being a being a being a sustaining member is an easy thing it's an easy thing on the budget and by the way just to interrupt for those yeah. who may not be familiar yeah. with the term that means that that there was a monthly amount that uh, that right. becomes goes to WITF yeah. yeah and um certainly it's worth it to me um I, if I were paying by the minute, I, I'd be paying really cheap, uh, <laughs> maybe just a couple of pennies a minute, because both um, on the television side and the radio side, um, I and my family are, are are big fans and big users. So we we can't ask, we can't give you an assignment that uh, you keep track by the minute and by the hour, so that we can put a number to that. No, I wouldn't want you to bill me that way. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the benefits that you see? Uh, you know, the variety. Um, I'm just, I'm a really curious person, and there is just so much out there, both in the the, the variety within the programs and within each one of the, of the programs. And um, this, from the science to the, you know, I, I Love the English dramas. Um, mm-hmm. Are and, you a Downton Abbey fan? And, and Poldark. I'm waiting for Poldark to come back. Um, He's on the way. I can, yeah. I can assure you. Yes. Leave my husband for Poldark. <laughs> but um, but also the the news programming. You know, news and information, and um, I and and um, and music. I actually watched Il Trovatore a couple of weeks ago on Friday evening. I think mm-hmm. it was on, mm-hmm. and um, so it it's just it's just amazing. It's a it's such a great resource, and you know it's uh, the depth, uh, the things I'm able to learn. And um, Kathleen, mm-hmm. one of the the key words that uh, Susan used was she said, "I'm a curious person," and if I w- was to pick out one word that described WITF viewers, listeners, uh, users of our website, curious would probably be right there at the top of the list. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, When I think about um, our many listeners, 
viewers, readers. Um, curiosity about the world around them is, is absolutely at the top of the list. It's why we called the campaign when we were building the Public Media Center a home for curiosity. Uh, and that's that is what we are. And uh, the other word you used, I think, is very relevant, variety. Uh, you, you recounted to me what you listened to just this morning. Oh, yeah. I think it was in one hour, the, the six to seven hour of um, morning edition, there was a story about baseball in Venezuela, soccer and FIFA, um, riots in India having to do with the caste system, the rainforest in Brazil, um, fashion and the Oscars in Hollywood, and intermingled with a couple of political reports. So that was a lot. I mean, they were all over the place this morning. I'm impressed that uh, you do not have that written down, and you just listed those (laughs) one by one. So, Kathleen, it sounds like Susan Pickett is uh, someone that is a case study for a Premier Circle member. Well, I, I'm I'm hopeful that people will see themselves in what Susan has said this morning and join her as a, a, one of the new members of the Premier Circle. Um, I, Susan is uh, r- remarkable in the depth and breadth of her interests, but uh, emblematic of the folks who who use WITF a great deal. What are ho- what I'm hoping to do is for those folks who haven't yet done what Susan's done, which is to move from being a listener and a viewer to being a donor as well, that they'll take this opportunity because dollar for dollar match. Uh, doesn't happen very often, and um, that it is. It's an absolutely uh, irresistible urge to have your contribution doubled. So one one more time, it's called 50 for the Future. We have a matching fund contributed by members of the senior team and myself and one generous donor with a very large contribution. We will match dollar for dollar uh, new PC donors uh, at uh, $1,200 or more per year, or um, as, as Susan is, as, as a sustainable sustaining Premier Circle donor of $100 a month or more. It's pretty simple to do, and you get a pretty good sense of satisfaction. Uh, is that part of it too, Susan? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm proud isn't a, a real good word, but I'm, I'm very happy to be able to do this. I, I think it's WITF is just is such a great resource, and um, I, I probably quote things I hear and learn um, Every day, you know, I share with somebody something that I picked up along the way, and I'm just, I'm just really gratified to be able to, to, to help in this way. Um, you know, we're not, um, I'm not a wealthy person, and, um, but this is something that is definitely worth the investment to me. You know, Kathleen, we probably have uh, a lot of people who are asking, okay, well, how can I, what are the logistics? How can I uh, become a Premier Circle member? Well, uh, one simple way is simply to go to WITF.org, and there's a donate button, and it'll take you right to the page. Uh, You can also give us a call, and uh, we will take care of it that way. Um, But uh, go online. Um, The the simplest way is to do that. uh, It's securely online with Visa, MasterCard, um, I'm sorry, I just forgot the song that we always sing uh, during the pledge drives, <laughs> the, the four credit cards. Uh, we make it easy because it, it's so important to do. And I just want to say thank you to Susan uh, for what you've said about the meaningfulness of WITF, um, because the, the staff who works here feels so strongly and deeply about the work that we do, whether it's 
for children with children, mm-hmm. or whether it's um, news and information, as as uh, many of us are involved with, uh, it's it's a mission and a commitment for us. Yeah. Yeah, and, you I know, I, one of the things I find so fascinating, especially since uh, we've been talking a lot about the last 50 years, is your own personal experience with uh, your your own children yeah. going back to when it was educational TV as mm-hmm. WITF-TV started mm-hmm. in 1964. Uh, and then now with your grandchildren going from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood to Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, it just so many people that we talk to uh, over the years say that they are generational listeners, Mm -hmm. that uh, they started uh, when they were very young or with their own children, and now uh, that they've, uh, you know, in in the further, in I'm not going to say older, that uh, (laughs) that in in years that, you know, nowadays that they're with their grandchildren, as far as the children programming go, but then they went on to other things, Mm -hmm. like the news and information, uh, like the history programs, like the science programs, like NOVA. Uh, You know, there is such a variety there. One of your your sons became a public radio listener quite specifically, right? Yeah, my my one son who lives out in Seattle, and I actually was watching Frontline last night, was on the heroin epidemic yes. in Seattle and uh, a lead program, a, a treatment program. And I, I'm going to um, go online, catch that, and forward it to, to my son, make sure that uh, that he sees it. So, yeah, he's a, he's a public, ra- public radio, public television junkie as well. You know, you, you mentioned that uh, I, I did not see the front line. I have to watch it on demand uh, last night. But uh, heroin is such a problem throughout right. this country, including here in the yeah. WITF listening and viewing area. Uh, our Ben Allen has just done a wonderful job documenting uh, not just uh, the the use of heroin throughout this region, but what's being done to fight it, what's being done to try to treat those people who have uh, unfortunately become addicted to heroin. But that's just a, a good example of how central Pennsylvania, that we, we're not our own little fiefdom here. We, we have problems that, uh, we have issues that yeah. the entire country has, and uh, you know it's a good example of what you saw last night on, on Frontline. We only have about a minute or so left, Kath. Uh, Again, for those who are just tuning in, what are we looking to do? The uh, challenge campaign is called 50 for the Future. We have a matching fund established by generous contributions, and we are asking 50 people to become new Premier Circle donors by making a one-time contribution of $1,200 or a monthly contribution of $100 or more. It will be matched dollar for dollar. So this is a terrific opportunity to increase the value of your contribution uh, and to uh, increase your status from being a listener and a read and a reader and a viewer and become a donor as well. Mm. Are we going to keep track of the numbers? Of course we're going to keep track of the numbers. Well, I mean, I know we are behind <laughs> the scenes, but are we, we publicly? Will. Yes, there, we will put it on the website, and we will from time to time let our uh, uh, existing donors and prospective donors know. So, yes, it's going to be a ra- – and, by the way, we have a deadline, June 30th. June 30th, the end of uh, our fiscal year, So, uh, and the state fiscal year. Maybe there will be a budget <laughs> by that time or not. We don't, we don't know. But uh, uh, we have a couple of things to look forward to for June 30th. But – 
when we have numbers listed like that, it can become a competition too, Kathleen. So let's... That, uh, we, we, in addition to being curious, our <laughs> listeners and viewers are also competitive and they want to win. <laughs> Kathleen Pavelka, WITS President and CEO, thank you very much for being with us. Susan Pickett, who is a uh, WITF Premier Circle member, thank you for being with us today too. Coming up tomorrow, climate change. You know, very often you hear a conservative's question uh, climate change. Well, we have a conservative who doesn't question it, but he does have some questions of his own. That's coming up on tomorrow's show.